very much for that ministry in music. As Paul is writing the book of Corinthians, he's writing to a mixed audience. The people that he is writing to are not all in one accord in their relationship to the Lord nor in their relationship to Paul. They really fall into three groups. The first is those who are true believers in the Lord Jesus Christ and have been supporters of the Apostle Paul for a long period of time. Then there is a second group that have manifested repentance, who had not believed while Paul was present. And uh, as a result of 1 Corinthians and other letters that Paul had written to them, came to a place of repentance, sought God's forgiveness, placed their faith in Jesus Christ, were born again, and are now followers of Christ and of Paul. Then there's a, a third group. And that is a group that continued in a state of unrepentance. Even though they had 1 Corinthians, even though they had other letters from the Apostle Paul, even though they had the testimony of other believers, they stood firm in their rejection of the Gospel and a rejection of the authority of the Apostle Paul. We move to a new section in 2 Corinthians. Up until this point, Paul primarily was addressing the first two groups, namely those that had believed in Christ and had been followers of the Apostle Paul, and those who manifested a state of repentance and come to place their faith in Christ and were allegiant to the Apostle Paul. And so he talks about his coming, and he prepares them for his coming. And the last preparation that needed to be made was that collection that we were talking about the last few weeks. Now the direction changes. And Paul begins to address the unrepentant group. Those that still have not placed faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And those who still are in opposition to him. He is preparing them for his coming as well. And so this morning, I invite you to turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. As we look at Paul's message to the unrepentant. Paul's message to the unrepentant. In 2 Corinthians 10 verse 1, it starts with this admonition or plea, if you will. Now I, Paul, myself urge you. Urge you. 2 Corinthians 10.1 I urge you. I plead with you. I beg you. And as we would read through these first 11 verses, we would wonder where the predicate is to that particular statement. What is he urging them to do? And if you read through the first 11 verses, and even if you would continue on, in the context, one might say that the predicate never shows up. Uh, it, it seems like an unended statement. What is he urging them to do? And the answer is what he's been urging them to do all along. In 2 Corinthians 5.20, Paul said, Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were entreating through us, we beg you, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. 
So Paul says that he is an ambassador. He is a representative of Jesus Christ. One who is divinely authoritated to beg people to be reconciled to God. 2 Corinthians 6.1, he writes, And working together with him, we also urge you not to receive this grace of God in vain. So working together with Jesus Christ, he says, do not receive this grace of God in vain. God had been tremendously gracious to the congregation at Corinth. They had received the word of God. They had people in their midst who proclaimed the truth of God. They had heard the gospel. And unfortunately, some of them continued in an unrepentant state. And so Paul says to them, I urge you, in keeping with chapter 5, keeping with chapter 6, once again, I urge you, I beg you, be reconciled to God. But he was getting nowhere with this particular group. They were not moved. They were unaffected. And a part of that being unmoved and unaffected was their response to the Apostle Paul. They did not think of him very highly. In 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 10, we read these words. For they say, they say, that they are the opponents, the, those that are rejecting the gospel and rejecting Paul. They say, his letters are weighty and strong. But, his personal presence is unimpressive and his speech is contemptible. When they read 1 Corinthians, they said, wow, that's pretty powerful stuff. That's pretty moving. The way you almost believe. But you know, this guy, when he shows up, his bodily presence and his speech do not match what he's written. His bodily presence is weak. The Apostle Paul had a lot of infirmities. He had a lot of illnesses. He had a lot of sicknesses. Uh, he had a lot of, of troubles. He was unimpressive, it says, about his, his bodily presence. We went over some of this material in the past, but the Apostle Paul was short, even by the standards of the day, and even by uh, uh, the standards of... Uh, his ethnicity, but he was, he was very short. He was a cripple, uh, probably as a result of the many whippings and, and uh, stonings and things that he went through. Uh, he was uh, severely crippled, uh, virtually lame, very hard for him to get around. They say he spoke with a lisp. Uh, he was virtually blind. Most people think that was a result of the Damascus Road experience. But Paul alludes to that in the book of Galatians. says to them, you had such love for me, you would have torn out your own eyes and given them if it were possible. So look at what uh, letter I've written to you. You can tell I've written it to you because it's written in such large letters. Uh, when he signed his name, he signed it extremely large because he could hardly see. So here's this crippled, short, virtually blind guy that shows up that has a lisp. Not the kind of person 
that you would think that God would call to be an apostle. Not the kind of person that you would think that God is going to use tremendously. And it was a huge stumbling block for a certain number of people because he didn't fit the mold. He didn't meet the expectation. There were some in their midst that taught that if you were going to be right with God, then you would be healed. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, the Apostle Paul has to go into a long defense about this thorn in the flesh that he has, the physical infirmities that he possesses, and why God didn't remove them. The reason for that defense is because of this opposition of people that saying he must not be very spiritual if he has all of these physical problems. Now, that's not all that far-fetched. There are still religious groups today that would give us the impression that if you're in a right relationship with God, everything's going to be fine in your life. You're not going to know any sickness. You're not going to know any hardship. You're not going to know any financial adversity. Everything's going to be just fine. Well, that's not the case. That's not the case. And Paul is making his case that he is indeed spiritual, even though his bodily presence was weak. We need to be very careful that we don't uh, draw some, some false impressions from the reading of the Scriptures. It says that his letters are weighty. They are powerful. That's all that we have. That's the only first-hand knowledge that we have the Apostle Paul. What we have in the Scriptures. And I think we have a tendency to uh, form an impression, our mind's eye, as a result of what we read in the Scriptures. I've said before that uh, I am a... uh, I, I love to read. I don't like movies. And I really don't like movies of books that I have read. And the reason is because what is portrayed on the film is nowhere near what it looks like in my mind. I envision people. I envision scenes. And when I see them in a movie, they they always are diminished in some way. They're not quite what I had envisioned, what I had anticipated. I would imagine that if we saw the Apostle Paul, even after the description that I gave you, if he were to show up in our midst, we'd be pretty amazed. We'd say, is this Paul? Is this really what this guy is like? Man, I, I, didn't, I didn't envision that. I, I didn't picture Paul that way. We can develop some false impressions. And those false impressions feed some erroneous thoughts. We may think, because Paul was so used of God, such a vital apostle, So effectual that we may have unconsciously developed a concept in mind that he was a great order and he was silver tongued and that he must have been this large strapping individual that would exude confidence and authority. And the reality is nothing could be farther from the truth. But even more than the Apostle Paul, Paul is going to 
associate himself with Jesus Christ. He says in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 1, Now I, Paul, myself urge you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. He is going to liken his conduct with that of Jesus Christ. And before we talk about Jesus' conduct, I like, I'd like to liken uh, even the physical attributes of Paul with the physical attributes of Jesus Christ. What did Jesus look like? What kind of voice did he have? What kind of presence did he exude? Well, there are some renderings, artistries, of what people thought that Jesus looked like. And uh, one of those characteristics that Jesus looked like, uh, think of your Sunday school materials that uh, portray Jesus Christ. He looks like a man among boys, does he not? He's always head and shoulders over the apostles. It's not hard to pick out Jesus. There he is. He's the tallest one. He's the one that has long flowing hair, beautifully groomed beard. Okay? Uh, if you watch the movie The Robe, he's the one where the, the, the shadow appears before he does. Some have a halo, a glow that is coming off of, of Jesus. And when Jesus speaks, he has that voice, you know. And he sounds like God when he speaks. Well, the scripture says of Jesus, Isaiah 53, verse 2, He grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He had... No beauty or majesty to attract us to him. People were not awed by Jesus' physical presence. They were not taken aback by how handsome he was. No one in the crowd was swooning over Jesus. They didn't sit and say, What a majestic voice! What an incredible orator. Wow. This must be God. And the scripture says it was purposeful. So that we would not be drawn to him. So that that would not be what we related to. That that is not what would attract people to him. It was purposeful in the mind of God that the Apostle Paul had All of these weaknesses. It was in keeping with the purpose and plan of God. And that is what these opposers, the opposition, couldn't grasp. He couldn't be spiritual and be like this. And Paul is saying, I am spiritual. And that is why... I am like this. Paul was not vacillating 
when he was with them. Second Corinthians 10, verse 2. I ask that while I am present, I may not be bold with the confidence with which I purpose to be courageous against some who regard us as if we walked according to the flesh. Paul says that he doesn't walk according to the flesh, meaning that he doesn't operate in the realm of human wisdom and strength. He was not going to be what they wanted him to be. He wasn't going to appeal to their carnal nature. Instead, he was going to appeal to the truth of the Word of God. Paul asserted that he was God's man. 2 Corinthians 10, verse 7. You are looking at things as they are outwardly. That was their mistake. He said, you're looking at things out. You're just looking at, and hence the title of the message, the uh, cover of the book. We can sometimes be mistaken by looking at the covering of the book. They're just looking at his physical appearance. They were just looking at his natural abilities and coming up with wrong conclusions. He says, you're looking at things as they are outwardly. If anyone is confident in himself that he is Christ." Let him consider this again within himself. That just as he is Christ, so also are we. We are Christ. We belong to Christ. We are doing Christ's will. That is the assertion. Well, we need to understand. And those that oppose us, and the gospel, sometimes they oppose us because of who we are and how we act. Oftentimes, people who oppose us don't understand us. They misdrew meekness or weakness. As I uh, am preaching this morning, I must admit that I'm a little embarrassed sitting in a wheelchair behind this desk to speak to you the Word of God. I'd much rather be standing up and be behind a pulpit, and be in very good health. I want to commend you this morning that you're willing to listen to somebody sitting in a wheelchair behind a table because not everybody is willing to do that. Not anybody, not everybody is uh, of a spiritual maturity that uh, they put up with that. There are a lot of people that want somebody that's Young and good-looking and forceful and dynamic and all of the things that go along with youth and, and good health. We need to be careful. We need to be careful of what it is that we, we really want when it comes to hearing and uh, proclaiming the Word of God. We need to be careful that people don't demean us. And I'm thinking now more generally just as the people of God. That people don't demean us because of our character, especially our meekness and humility. We live in a society that prizes strength, that prizes self-confidence, self-assurance. People that don't need anyone or anything, especially God. And a belief in God is viewed as a crutch, a Weakness that needs to be overcome. We live in a day and age in which people boast. 
They brag. They talk about their accomplishments. And we really almost expect people to do that. And uh, athletes are interviewed. Celebrities are interviewed. And they speak with just incredible abandon of their abilities and their talents and what they're going to accomplish. And rarely does anyone that is addressed about being a future Hall of Famer say, if the Lord wills, if I don't break my leg, if my shoulder doesn't go out if they're a pitcher. They don't talk about limitations. They don't talk about the unforeseen things that could happen to them. They are strong and confident in themselves. And our society wants that kind of leader. People who are strong and confident in themselves. And Paul is not. And Paul is not. Paul says that he is in a battle. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 3. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. He says that we are, are warring, but not according to the flesh. He likens the relationship that he is in to the non-believing Corinthians as a battle. This is a war that is going on. That's a really strong metaphor when you stop and and think about it. Sometimes uh, I get a little uneasy about all of the warring kinds of metaphors that we find, especially in our in our hymns. And we're going to sing one of those uh, this morning. Uh, the battle is the Lord's. There are many. Onward, Christian soldier. That metaphor is found time and time again. And it's easily misunderstood as being overly pugnacious or aggressive. Uh, that's not intended to be that. It's, it's a war because it is so sobering. It is sobering. It's a war because it teaches us of the difficulty and sometimes of the fierceness and the ferociousness of the opposition. It is not an exaggeration to say that there were some people that actually hated the Apostle Paul. They hated for what he stood for. And they hated what, they, what, he, what he said. And it's important that we don't become paranoid. But I tell you, we will encounter, we will encounter people that hate our message. And sometimes, because they hate our message, they hate us. They really do. It is a battle. And in the time that we have left this morning, all of that actually was introduction. As we look at the characteristics of the battle that the Apostle Paul is waging. Characteristics of the battle that the Apostle Paul is waging. First characteristic. Paul is in a battle that he is not afraid to fight. He's in a battle that he is not afraid to fight. Look at verse 2. I ask that when I am present, I may not be bold with the confidence with which I purpose to be courageous against some. And now this phrase, courageous against some. Paul says, I am confident. I am bold. 
And I will be courageous against some. These people that oppose Paul are not going to get him to back down. They are not going to get him to alter his message. They are not going to get him to shut up. And when he arrives, he is going to say the very same kinds of things that he said in the letters that he wrote. He is not afraid of the battle. Not in arrogance, but in firmness. Paul says, bring it on. Bring it on. Paul is confident of winning the battle. Verse 2. Lest when I am present, I may not be bold with the confidence with which I purpose to be courageous against some. He is sure that he is going to win this battle. Why is he so sure that he's going to win the battle? Because he has the weaponry necessary. Verse 4. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh. Paul is not afraid of coming to the Corinthians. He's not afraid of showing up. He's coming. He's writing them about the fact that he is indeed coming. He's preparing them for his appearance. Prepared the first group that you'll be ready with a collection. He prepares the second group by saying, Know that when I come, I'm going to say the same things in person that I've said in my letter. And know that I'm going to be warring, but it's not going to be with the flesh. It's not going to be my physical strength. It's not going to be my oratory. It's not going to be my speech that is going to make the difference. Paul's weapons are not what one might think. Verse 4. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh. Instead, Paul's weapons are effectual. Verse 4. For the weapons of our warfare are not of flesh, but divinely Powerful. Powerful. Today, when we think of warfare and we think of battles, there are many different kinds of weapons that are used to fight a battle, to fight a war. And there is one classification of armament that we refer to as weapons of mass destruction. There are revolvers. That is not a a weapon of mass mass destruction. One bullet killing one person. There are rifles. There are repeating rifles. There are all kinds of armament that are used anywhere from hand-to-hand combat to waging war against an entire city. Those are weapons of mass destruction. Usually, we think of nuclear weapons. Atomic weapons. The atomic bomb. And we think of that mushroom cloud that came up over Hiroshima. Paul says that my weapons are powerful. They're powerful. Why are they powerful? Notice verse 10. They are divinely powerful. Divinely powerful. They are spiritually powerful. They 
are nuclear because they are God's weapons. Paul's not relying upon his natural abilities. He readily acknowledges, all through the first part of 2 Corinthians, readily acknowledges that his natural abilities are not adequate for the task. Where the Corinthians fail is to fail to realize that there are no natural abilities that are adequate for the task. You can get the greatest orator in the world, and without the intervention of God, without a working of His Spirit, there is not going to be regeneration. People are not going to be born again. People are born again through the work and the ministry of the Holy Spirit. It's not the wisdom of the preacher. It's not the height of the street preacher. It's not the health of the, of the preacher. It is a divine work of God. And so he is assured. He is confident that when he is in their presence, that God is going to work. He says these weapons are able to annihilate strongholds. Verse 4. Divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. Destruction of fortresses. People fortify themselves to protect themselves against armament, against weaponry. Okay? So you think of armored tanks, sheets and sheets of steel and metal, so that the people inside are protected. And of course, a revolver won't do anything. You can shoot an armored tank with a, with a pistol, and you're going to get nowhere. But it can't withstand a nuclear attack. Paul says we are able to destroy fortresses. Fortresses. The kinds of things you know, where you hear in Iran, Iraq, of, of bunkers that are 20 feet below ground, thinking that you know, certainly they are safe because of these bunkers that are 20 feet before, below ground. And then you hear these heat-seeking missiles and all the kinds of things that can penetrate these, these bunkers and, and, and blow them up. Paul says, our weapons are divinely powerful to the destruction of fortresses. The most protected structure that can be erected by mankind, God can destroy. Paul's divinely powerful weapons are able to take on any fortifications that man can come up with. But what's he really talking about? What is this battle? Who is the enemy? What is at stake? Well, the enemy is that which opposes the truth of God. Look at verse 5. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. That's what he is destroying. That's the fortress. That's the battle. That's the enemy. That's the target. That's the goal. That is the mission. To destroy speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. So let's look at that a little more detail. First, the speculations. False wisdom and faulty reasoning. False wisdom and faulty reasoning. In 1 Corinthians, Paul wrote to them and said, 
For the wisdom of this world is foolishness before God. For it is written, He is the one who catches the wise in their craftiness. There are people that are too smart for their own good. They are too intelligent for their own well-being. They're described in Timothy as people who are ever learning, but unable to come to the knowledge of the truth. They're described in Corinthians as those who get puffed up by reason of their knowledge. There are a lot of critics that stand in opposition to the Scripture. They don't believe it's inspired. They don't believe that it is inerrant, that it is without error. They don't believe, ultimately, that it's God's Word. They see it as a product of mankind. They see it as thoughts for daily living and, and wisdom, but are not at all embarrassed or ashamed to attack it. Question, did Jesus really say that? Did that miracle really occur? Certainly we don't believe in miracles. We know better than that. We know that axe heads don't float. We know that you can't take five loaves and two fishes and, and feed over 5,000 people. We know you can't walk on water. We know better than that. What foolishness, so many would say. And then there are lofty thoughts. That is arrogance. Arrogance. That is a sense of superiority or higher wisdom or knowledge. And these people pity us for what we believe. Uh, they, they look at us and shake their head. How sad. How sad. How sad that you're wasting your life sitting in, in church. How, what a terrible thing that you give your money to proclaim the gospel of Jesus. What a waste. What a waste. What a waste of time. What a waste of effort. All these poor Christians, if only they'd wake up and smell the roses. If only they would see. And in their arrogance, they simply refuse to trust in the Word of God and the wisdom of God. And certainly at Corinth, that was a huge element. They, it was a hotbed of philosophy. It was like uh, going to, to Cambridge or uh, where, uh, you, know, uh, you know, going to where Harvard is, where, where the seats of intellect are, the college towns, and, and proclaiming the Word of God. And there are just people that aren't open to that. Paul says, I'm not going to change the battle plan. I'm, uh, I'm not... Uh, I'm not going to alter the gospel. I'm not going to make it more acceptable, more reasonable to mankind. I'll tell you, the, the, the greatest threat to the Word of God in our day, the greatest threat to the Word of God in our day is the ever-growing thought that we need to accommodate our culture and our society. That people are so ingrained that there are things that you better just not mention. Okay? 
One of those things that you better just not mention is the idea that there's a devil. Satan. And people, you know, say, do you really believe this guy running around with horns and a pitchfork and a, and a tail? No, I don't believe in a creature with horns and a pitchfork and a tail. Because that's not what the Word of God describes when it's talking about a devil. But it's talking about a supernatural being that has incredible powers and who is at work in our world. And I unabashedly say, yes, I believe in a literal devil. I believe in a literal hell. Do you know that less than 25% of evangelicals believe in a hell? We live in a society that says you can't preach a hell. People are going to be turned off. Their concept is God is loving and God will love everyone. Bob Bell's book, Love Wins. The idea that, that no one is ever going to be opposed or that, that God is going to reject people of other faiths. How can you be so intolerant? How, how can you be so narrow? How can you be so stupid? How can you be so ignorant of other cultures and other societies? How can you be so insensitive to say things like that? Those are the thoughts. Those are the oppositions. Those are the ideas that reject the gospel and find people that say those things as incredibly offensive. How could you be so intolerant? How could you be so old-fashioned? How could you be so ignorant of other cultures to say such things? How could you be so arrogant as to say there's only one way to heaven and you know that way and everybody else is wrong? You understand the battle. You understand where the issue lies. Paul says, we are at war. It is that sobering. It is that important. Why? Because what is at stake is the gospel of Jesus Christ. If he is going to satisfy what the rest of these Corinthians want, he's going to have to change the gospel. And that is not what Paul is willing to do. Paul says in 1 Corinthians that uh, to the wise, the gospel is foolishness. But to those that believe, it's the wisdom of God and it's the power of God. So Paul says, I'm winning. Verse 5. He's taking prisoners. Verse 5. We're destroying speculations. Every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God We are taking every thought captive. Now, I I love metaphors. I love word pictures. You see the battle. Here's the gospel outside. Here's the fortress. Here's the fort. And the forts are man's speculations, man's wisdom. And all these people are crouched behind the walls that they have built. And it's their thoughts. It's their ideas. 
And Paul says that we're coming and that fortress, we're knocking down and we're taking every thought captive. Meaning that the gospel is transforming people's thoughts and ideas and practices. Why do we think so differently from so many in the culture round about us? Answer, because we have been taken captive. We've been taken prisoner. Because the gospel has subdued us. And we have come to believe in these things that formerly we rejected. Formally, we laughed at. Formally, we too were in opposition with, especially if we were saved at an older time in life. Paul says, we're taking every thought captive. With the result, he is causing every thought to render obedience to Christ. Verse 5. And we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. So that people now follow Christ. This is what the Corinthians were unwilling to do. Follow Christ's instruction. These people are following Christ. We too are in the process of changing people's thoughts. Changing people's ideas. Changing people's concepts. Challenging people's beliefs. Some of them long held. Some of them ingrained from the time of being young. We are encountering people that have a worldview that is so different from that of the scriptures. Lifestyle. Supposedly alternative lifestyles. Of which people find nothing wrong with things that the Word of God says is sin. And we find ourselves at loggerheads. But what do we do, you see, in that, that loggerhead? What do we do? Paul says the first thing is he doesn't, he doesn't run away from the fight. That's not what he's going to do. He said, I'll be courageous when, when I get there. He's not, he's not running away. It's not that we just keep silent. That's not the answer. But the answer also is not our wisdom. And it's not our ability. One of the reasons we may be silent in talking to other people is because we are very much aware that we can't argue somebody into the kingdom. We can't. But that isn't something that requires more education. That's something I had to learn the hard way, to be quite frank. It took me a long time to learn that, that, that thought. You know, I, I started off going to Kutztown University, and I sat behind a table at Kutztown. It was an university table, and I handed out literature, and I'd witness to people. And people would raise questions I didn't have the answer for. It was one of the primary reasons that I transferred to Lancaster Bible College. I got tired of not having the answers. And uh, I had intended to go to seminary after puts down, but I decided to go to Bible College first, so I get the answers. Well, I graduated from Lancaster Bible College and realized I didn't have all the answers. 
So I went to seminary. Had four years, full-time student, seminary, at uh, biblical seminary. Came out, guess what? Didn't have all the answers. All right, so now I had a Master of Indy. So I went back to school, worked on my doctorate, did all the classwork necessary for the doctorate. Guess what? I still don't have all the answers. I still can't go to McDonald's and argue somebody in the kingdom of God. I still can't make everybody see that they are wrong for the beliefs that they hold. It's impossible. Do you understand that? It's impossible. Nobody here has that ability. It's not a matter of personality. It's not a matter of trait. It's not a matter of boldness. It's not a matter of of eloquence. It's not a matter of how healthy you are. It's not a matter of how good-looking you are. None of those things are going to change the heart and minds of an individual. It's the gospel. It's the word by God. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by... That's our, that's, our, that's our weapon. But it's a powerful weapon. It's a weapon that seduces people's thoughts, their loftiness, their arrogance. Paul was strategic in his battle. He wants no collateral damage. Paul is meek and timid because he's waiting for Corinthians to be repentant. Look at verse 6. And we are ready to punish all disobedience whenever your obedience is complete. Paul is saying, I am ready. I am ready to come and put things in order. But I am waiting for you to be obedient. For you to be repentant. And this too is in keeping with the activity of Christ. When Jesus went to the cross, he was meek, he was lowly. And the Word of God said, Look at your king, who is meek and lowly, riding on a donkey. And even the fool of a donkey. But when Christ returns, he's going to not be riding on a donkey, he's going to be riding on a white horse. He's coming not in meekness, he's coming with a sword. In his hand. And he is going to reign, the scripture says, with a rod of iron. Right now, Jesus Christ is giving people an opportunity to repent. But that time is going to come to an end. And when it comes to an end, every knee will bow. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He's going to win the battle. No question. But in the meantime, He's meek and he's holy. Paul says, when I come, if I have to, I'll come in force. I'll come in power. But I want you to be obedient. I want you to repent. Paul says in verse 8, For even if I should boast somewhat further about our authority, which the Lord gave for building you up and not for destroying you. Paul says, this weapon that I've been given, it was intended not for your destruction. It was intended for your protection. Paul says, my goal is not to wipe you out. My goal is not to destroy you. He says to the opposition, and those that are rejecting Christ and rejecting Him, 
My desire is not for your annihilation. That's not why I've been given this authority. That's not why I've been given this power. It's not for revenge. It's for your well-being. It's for your health. And again, I think that's something that the evangelical church is losing in our society. Our warfare is not to subdue other peoples. It is not to bring them harm. It is not to blow up abortion centers. It is not to cause people grief and heartache. It is to bring people to a place of repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. It is not evangelical strength to by force put other people down. Evil evangelical strength is in timidity and meekness humbly beg people to change and repent. Paul says that is what spirituality is. And I'm afraid, I really am afraid, in evangelicalism we're losing sight of what real, real spirituality is. How the battle is to be fought. It's not intended to annihilate people. It's not intended to punish people. It's intended to bring people's thoughts captive to obedience of Jesus Christ that they might experience repentance and forgiveness of sins and enjoy peace with God. May we understand our opposition. But may we with tenderness and meekness and temperance only want their well-being, only want their repentance, only want their forgiveness. Let's pray.